Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So here's the question for today. Do you wish that you worked in an organization with no or very little hierarchy, where each employee really had to determine their path to achieving, of course, the agreed upon goals? And are you even debating as a leader what's the ideal organizational structure for your business? Or perhaps you've just become a manager and you're wondering what is it that a manager really needs to do after all that's really useful and that adds value. So this debate about hierarchy versus what we might call an agile organization or a bossless organization is not really new. There are all sorts of models out there, and we've done podcasts on collaborative operating systems and how they could work and what they would look like. But today, we're going to take a very opposite angle. We want to look at the pros and cons for each model, the pros and cons for the hierarchy and for the bossless model. And ultimately end up in a debate about what it means managers really do that's valuable. So my guest today is Nikolai Foss. He's the professor of strategy and organization at the Copenhagen Business School. And he's one of the most prolific European management professors writing recently the book we're talking about today with Peter Klein, Why Managers Matter. The Perils of the Bossless Company. That should give away where Nikolai stands on this particular story, but let's see how it all unfolds for the rest of us. So, Nikolai, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, Wanda. I I appreciate the opportunity. I am so looking forward to this discussion because I think it's a really critical one for how we think about what we do as managers and what we do as organizations. Before we launch into the theme, though, why? Why are you passionate about this debate? What were you seeing that you thought was really worth noting? Right. There's so many things I could mention here, um, and I'll mention a few of them. It, it, you know, it's partly personal because um, having to do with my background, I'm Danish, and uh, one of the first really well-publicized experiments with what you might call bastards organizing took place in the Danish company called Oticon, uh, and Oticon wasn't. Bill is uh, a key player in the hearing aids industry. Uh, and in 1991, so many, many years ago, they moved to uh, a very flat, uh, entirely project-based organization, at least in the headquarters. And they called it the Spaghetti Organization. There was a, there was a lot of fanciful imagery around this, but you know, like a lump of spaghetti, uh, the, the, the organization would keep its structure while still being flexible, right? So that was that was the idea. And it received a lot of, of media attention. So CNN would, would fly in a crew and the Oticon would be featured on CNN. This was a big thing in Denmark in, the, in those days, right? Uh, and it was an organizational form that was very, very successful financially in terms of the financial uh, outcomes that it produced, and also in terms of the innovations that it gave rise to. Uh, and it was sort of hailed by many, many gurus, including Tom Peters, uh, as sort of, um, this, this, this is the organization of the future. Yeah. But then I noticed that it was abandoned silently after only five years, which no one really seemed to, to notice. But I did, uh, I did research on the spaghetti organization. I interviewed people there. And I 
discover this huge divergence between sort of the official account and, of course, the account of Tom Peters and what actually took place in that organization. So there was, there was a lot of mess, uh, partly because there were no models to imitate, right? And uh, a lot of unhappy employees because there was this official rhetoric of, you know, you are, you are adults, you are free, um, you are, we empower you, uh, we, we stay away from what you're doing, we don't meddle, we don't interfere, but they did. Right, so there was there was a clash between actual management practice and the espoused values. This was just fascinating, right? Uh, then a second thing that got me interested is because I is, is that I I like decentralization as a principle. There's so many good things you can say about decentralization. You know, let let people who people often know best themselves what should be done and how it should be done. And if this is a sort of a, an organizing principle at the level of society, why not in companies? Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other hand, companies, they, have, they are born with a manager, a boss, a leader. They are born more or less with, with a hierarchy. It's, it sounds like the opposite of decentralization, right? So why this clash and how can we resolve it? Uh, and of course, this matters a lot for, for actual management practice because one of the things that managers all have to struggle with on a daily basis is how much to, to delegate to, to the employees. Mm -hmm. Then the, the third thing that really got me interested in this was beginning to teach executives and, and discovering how many of them were, um, you know, uh, captivated almost by this narrative about the bossless of organization, right? Uh, a lot of talk about 100% project-based organizations, organizations with only one or two hierarchical layers and so on. And this was just puzzling to me. Did these guys that I, I was teaching, did they want to argue themselves out of, the, of their jobs, basically, right? Mm -hmm. so why? So, so many interesting, puzzling issues, if you think about it. And I'm so, sure them all. But these were the three that really mattered to me, at least. I love that. So watching a company that starts, that is born, in effect, and touted as brilliantly successful for being a flatless, bossless organization, a flat, bossless organization, and watching it convert silently to the other direction, seeing that employees in this organization were not particularly happy because there was rhetoric on the one hand and practice on the other hand. Yeah. So managers can't seem to take themselves out of being a little bit more structured and controlling. You prefer decentralization, but that's not how companies seem to be working. And while executives love it, they tout it all the time. They can't seem to not do the hierarchy at the end of the day. So it sounds like we love the idea and in practice, the concept doesn't work. Yeah, uh, that's that's accurate. And that, of course, raises the, uh, the this, is a, this is the million dollar question, right? Why, why do we see people embracing this idea and then not practicing it, as it were. Well, a lot of people embrace, embracing it while not practicing it. But I think that ideas of bossless organizing and really flat organizations and so on um, appeal to some deeply held culturally cultural beliefs. So we value autonomy. Um, we value individual initiative, entrepreneurship, empowerment, uh, you know, many of us dislike authority. 
and hierarchy. I mean, it's, it's almost in, instinctual, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the idea that companies can be bossless and so on, it just, it just resonates. Yeah. So in, in, in our book, Peter and I have a couple of chapters where we discuss sort of the, you know, the origins of this idea. And it, it, it really does go back a very long time, uh, very, very far back in time. So we have uh, ideas already in the uh, 19th century on cooperative organization and worker-led companies and so on. And that's pretty much the beginning of this. Um, and then what, what seems to have been very important for the, these ideas in their modern manifestation is actually the, um, the, the, the countercultural movement of the 1960s. Now, uh, many of, of these companies, the initial bossless companies, um, uh, Morningstar, for example, the tomato producer, or Gore-Tex, uh, they were founded in the late 1960s, basically, and clearly inspired by these ideas. And it, it, but in the, by the way, it's interesting that, that Chris Rufer, who is the, the CEO of, founder and CEO of Morningstar, is, is, is a very committed libertarian mm -hmm. right? of, the, of the Californian variety. You know, people who are able to fuse, you know, the, the Californian ethos with libertarian political ideas, right? You, you can see where he's coming from and why he wanted to make his company bossless. Okay, I remind you, 1960s, that's the baby boomer generation, my era, I will confess. And we did start in the world with this whole countercultural throw it all out, in spite of everybody accusing us of being the polar opposite at the moment. So I think that's an interesting right. commentary on the baby boomers. Not not so relevant right now for us today. All right, Nikolai, let's make sure that we're clear what we mean by these terms. I realize that's a little bit of an academic pursuit for me, but it's so easy to throw this around and not know what we're talking about. Sure. When I think of hierarchical organization, I think of uh, levels in the hierarchy where more power, more authority to say yes or no is attributed to the higher you go in the organization. Is there anything else we need to be focused on that characterizes a hierarchical organization? Right. So what you're talking about is what? people who do organizational theory would call uh, the distribution of authority across the hierarchy. And that, that of course, is, is really a key aspect of hierarchy, but then there, there, there are many other things. So um, if, if, if you're from the baby boomer generation and, and you think hierarchy, you also think of, you know, uh, who, who defines and allocates the tasks? Managers do, right? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a reward system which may be very fixed and stable. Uh, there's monitoring by managers. Managers issue direction. They disseminate information. There's a fixed reporting structure. There's the standard operating procedures. There may be more or less clear criteria for promotion and so on. And you know, this uh, it, it sounds like bureaucracy, right? Uh, which is a little bit unfortunate because bureaucracy has its place, but it's really not a universal um, organizational solution. And it's also unfortunate because nowadays most people don't really use the classical hierarchical model. It's, it's much looser than it used to be like 50, 60 years ago. Um, there's much more decentralization, I think, uh, delegation. Um, we use self-managing teams and projects much, much more. Uh, but 
I mean, it's still a hierarchy because you still have managers who who, who have the right to intervene and, and, and will do it occasionally. They monitor work. Um, they decide on rewards. They define, you know, the basic rules of the game. What is it we, we should be doing? How should we do it? And so on. So, so part of the, the problem here is, is understanding that the hierarchy comes in so many different forms. And it's not something you should associate with, you know, the big U.S. industrial companies of, of yesteryear. I mean, the, the typical corporation of the 1950s. Companies nowadays are just structured very, very differently. Right, right. So there, we still allow for a lot of initiative, if you will, in the middle and in the lower levels, the frontline parts of the organization in particular, especially if you have a customer-facing or a manufacturing facility. You're going to see a lot of that. But you have a management structure that, if I get you right, defines what we're going to achieve, what the tasks are going to be, allocates resources to those tasks, determines some basis of a reward system, which is both monetary and promotion, um, and can intervene periodically to direct, redirect, or change, or so on. So that's what we mean by hierarchy. Now, do the polar opposite for me. What do you mean by bossless organization? Yeah, this this is a bit of a misnomer because, strictly speaking, I don't think any organizations are literally bossless. Uh, there's, There's this... Um, notion called the iron law of oligarchy. The, the, the notion that in any social group, at least one leader will emerge or appear and, and, and you know, well, uh, assume power. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in the, the so-called bossless companies that are always mentioned in the literature on bossless organizing, we very much do see bosses. So in, I mentioned Chris Rufer earlier, right? So this is Morningstar. We have, if we look at Valve, another of the poster um, boys with this this narrative, uh, that's, that's Gabe Newell, who's, who's very much the boss, even even though the organization is in, in, indeed very very flat. Uh, in, in, I mentioned Otikon earlier. There was um, a very powerful boss called Lars Kulin. So when you look a little bit closer at these examples of bosses organization that or bosses organizing. There's almost always a boss, usually the founder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that when people actually meet. A founder or CEO who takes a very large leadership role and often a large presence in the organization. Absolutely. That, that's it, exactly. Okay. And- uh, but I, I, you know, I think what we go a little bit beyond this because that's, you know, that's scoring a, a cheap point in a sense, right? What, what the serious advocates of this way of organizing actually mean is that, you know, um, there's a very flat hierarchy. Most of the decision-making power has been delegated. Employees can, to a large extent, create, define their own tasks. Um, like in, in, in Valve, rewarding employees may be a peer-based uh, activity, and, you know, which requires that monitoring of efforts is also peer-based. Um, and they may also include things like constant peer-based information sharing and, and, and communication. So you, you, can, you can certainly give this notion of bossless organizing uh, a serious objective content. What I've seen, what we've done on the podcast, when I've had either been two in the past that have talked about a collaborative operating system, what that would look like. 
And it's in the same sense of bossless, it's much more defined around teams that are working where there is no designated power authority. And the team owns the decision making. And how do you then come to a decision as a team without taking too long or defaulting to whoever is the most leader like in the group in one way or another? And that's what those systems are about. I think it's easier to see them, though, on a project by project basis than it is to imagine a whole organization that's defined that way and pros and cons on both sides. All right. So by bossless, we mean very, very flat where rewards might be peer-based, information sharing might be peer-based, employees define the tasks in some ways, the decision is very deeply delegated, but it's not that there's zero leader, there's still at least a CEO and probably some heads of functions because I think you would need a CFO and a chief operating officer to get things done. I can't imagine that you could present to your stakeholders without that. And by hierarchy and contrast, we're talking about managers holding much more authority to define tasks, to do rewards, to allocate resources, to intervene is kind of the extreme. So really at the end of the day, I think Nikolai talking about what's the role of the manager anyway? Right. Uh, Let's not go there first. How, 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 let's put reframe it a little bit. Let's ask how, how do they add value in a sense, right? Right. That's what I would um, say. So, so, so what is it they do to to add value? What how does that, that role translate into actual value creation? Um, Henry Mensberg once produced this famous list of what what managers do. So he he talks about managers being. Um, figureheads and spokespersons and you know someone has to assume the leader role as we've as we've the talk, discussed there's a need for negotiators with the external environment also uh, there, there are conflicts that just cannot be easily resolved bilaterally or horizontally and they need to be appealed high up in the hierarchy uh, managers also mm, disturbance handlers uh, and of course they're monitors and so on I think it, Minsberg comes up with 10 different ropes, right? And the interesting thing is that, in principle, all of these roles could be handled, could be taken care of in a bossless organization. Uh, so, in principle, all of this could be done by people, you know, interacting horizontally. Uh, but the point, I think, is that most of the time, not always, but most of the time, this is slow and it's inefficient. So we, no one is saying that process organizing, so-called, is impossible. It is possible. But for most companies, it's, not, it's just not going to work. It will be too slow, too cumbersome, too inefficient. And not geared to the environments they are in. And this, this is absolutely the key. Understanding that there's no single correct solution when it comes to hierarchy and, and organizing in general. It all depends on the concrete contingencies that the company faces. All right. I'm going to come to that one in a minute. Okay. Back because I skipped an important part of this argument. Um, what's the value of hierarchy? Where does that actually really add positive? What's the pro for that? Right. Uh, so it, it value of hierarchy 
in the context of discussion of the different managerial functions that we've just had is among other other things that it economizes or saves on say the top of the people that saves on the time of the of the people in the top right so um we don't want the the CEO in a one hundred thousand employees company to, you know, be preoccupied with trivial monitoring issues on the factory floor. It's it would it's totally silly. It's impossible for the guy in the top to do that anyway, because his or her time and attention and so on is limited. So we want to have some kind of division of labor when it comes to the management tasks. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, this is this is what the hierarchy accomplishes. It, it does so by breaking down the problems that we have to solve uh, across the hierarchy. So, the the in a sense, in principle, at least the 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 simple, directly actionable problems are placed at the bottom of the hierarchy. While the the in principle again the the big fluffy complex problems are placed at the top, at the top of the hierarchy. Strategic direction, which market should we be in, which should we enter, which market should we leave, so on and so forth, right? And this this also indicates that things like decision-making style is going to differ depending on where you are in the hierarchy. So, uh, and, and this, this is something managers need to understand and, and I guess learn as they move up through the hierarchy. Decision-making closer to the bottom of the hierarchy is just vastly different from decision-making in the top. So I'm sure you've interviewed many top, top managers. If you talk to them, you'll find that they are very often, they are very, they, they, they listen very, more than they, um, than they talk, many of them, right? Uh, they, and that's because I, I think a large part of what they do is that they collect a lot of information coming up through the hierarchy to them. And their fundamental job is to synthesize all that information, which is super complex and requires a lot of deliberation and the ability to somehow juggle all this, all these massive amounts of information, right? And make, make good judgment on the basis of that information. Whereas what a, what a manager at lower levels is doing is, is is different because the information amount is smaller and the character, the nature of information is different and so on. Yeah. So the hierarchy exploits different, it, it sort of it defines different kinds of problems that we need to be attentive to. And it, it almost automatically defines different ways of making decisions given those problems. If you can see what I mean. It's a little bit abstract, but that's that's my, my take on this, right? I think this is a critical point, and I'm going to pause on it because I think okay. it's the thing that most people developing leaders, developing themselves, and trying to be an effective manager miss. And it's the heart and soul of my work as well. Yep. So the point is, when I'm in the middle to bottom half of the organization, I believe the job is much more about controlling risk and controlling quality. And we might say managing rather than controlling. I don't mean controlling with your thumb, you know, press down on people. There are many ways of getting that done. But if your middle managers are not making sure that your product is coming out with high quality, then you're stuffed. Like that's, they're close to it. That's what they should do. 
And so many leaders in that coming up through the ranks develop a style of leadership that's well-suited to the last leadership job they have without an understanding that the next two or three may require a dramatically different approach because the decisions, as you say, are different. The job is different. The people are different. I mean, it's that understanding that what made you really successful at one place is not going to make you successful as you move through the hierarchy. Yes. And yet it may be a bad idea to skip the intermediate steps. I mean, you don't move directly from business school to being a, a top manager, right? Yeah. You have to ascend up through the hierarchy and uh, you have to learn what goes on at the various level, levels of hierarchy. But then, as you say, you the things you have to unlearn in an intelligent man, a manner. And as, I, I suppose a number of managers, they, they get stuck and they just can't, can't do this. Right. I don't understand it. What I see, Nikolai, is so many people don't understand. I've been successful for 20 years of my career. I've led the big teams. I'm really strong. What do you mean I now have to do it differently? They don't get it. And nobody explains it to them. Right. And, that, that, uh, and it's an evolution. It's not a single like line in the sand where suddenly one day you stop one and start something else. And but I've also, I used, yeah, I used to believe that you could skip levels. And we're still talking about the hierarchy. We've got to go back to the bossless organization. You could skip levels. Why couldn't you? Everybody's capable. And I've seen too many failures now. I know I was wrong. Because there are lessons learned about how decisions are made, how influence happens, who the characters are, what's really at stake, how to think about this problem in a different way from an enterprise level way, for example. That until you've gone through some of those steps, you're just not ready Exactly. And a lot of people fail without that. It's very interesting. Okay. And this is what troubles me a little bit with all the talk about de-layering in, in the context of bossless organization. Yeah, we, it's, it sounds fine to cut a lot of layers, but you know, may, you may also potentially sacrifice a lot of management training. Yeah. That's the problem. I think we have to revamp our management training. If you ask my real mission around closer to what is actually happening today in organizations, as opposed to our rhetoric of for the last 50 years on how we develop managers. But let me not get on my soapbox. Today is about you. Let's flip to the opposite. What's right with the bossless organization? What, what, what is right or what isn't right? right? What is good? What is good about a bossless organization? I want the pros. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I think... It, it's inspirational, clearly. It appeals to lots of managers, and that's because they they realize, they recognize that they they need to think about delegation and empowerment and decentralization, how to do this in the best possible manner. This is just it's a management classic, but it's just super super difficult to to carry out in the right way, right? Because it is it is so contingent. It's dependent on the tasks you're managing, on the people you're managing, on the personal characteristics, on your own management style, and so on. So it 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 will always be a challenge. Uh, what's right about it is, yeah, well, I think for some companies it 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 does work if you are reasonably small. Although there are a few exceptions, like GoTech, Go, uh, Go Industries, for example, um, which is a relatively big company. But you, you, you have to be usually relatively small, meaning less than 500 employees. You, you usually will have to have a reasonably 
uh, easy to understand underlying technology, like producing tomatoes, perhaps, or at least a technology or a, a task set that can be broken up in something manageable, like, you know, developing software, which the way we develop software is we, we break it up into chunks of code. Yeah. We, 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 develop, we, we break up the development of specific chunks of code of code into specific modules that we can then allocate to projects and team. And then afterwards, towards the end, we try to fit it all together, right? Of course, it's much more advanced in reality. It doesn't always work that way. But kind of like, sorry? Keep going, keep going. That, that kind of um, technology, those kind of contingencies lend themselves to bossless organizing. But I also think you need special people most of the time. I mean, a company like 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 Valve apparently isn't for everyone if you look at Glassdoor or similar, right? Uh, and I, I think this may also be, if I remember correctly, this is also one of the things that Chris Rufo really stressed when he founded Morning, Morningstar, that we are, we are looking for people who actually appreciate and value autonomy, the autonomy and freedom that comes with working for Morningstar. Okay. Um, so, yeah, but for many, many, many companies, certainly those in, in traditional manufacturing, it's not going to work because the technology is different. If things are really, really interdependent and you cannot easily parcel it out in, in modules, you also, get, you also get into trouble if you try busless organizing. And that means we are, we effectively we are talking about 95% of you know, the companies in this world. It won't work for them. And that's the danger of the boss's narrative, right? It strikes me if you work in a professional services firm where regulatory issues are so high, or in healthcare where regulatory issues are so high, that being bossless would be difficult to satisfy the regulators. So I can imagine some industries as well where it just would be a difficult thing to pull off. Well, that, yeah, that's actually an interesting um, observation because one of one of the few truly successful examples of bossless organization that I think exists in the world today is something called Burt's Oak. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's a huge network of nurses in the Netherlands. I think they are more than 10,000 uh, nurses working basically in a team-like manner, right? Okay. And this is, this is healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it seems to work for them quite well. In fact, in fact, where it works so well that... that now, there's a political discussion in a number of European con- countries um, currently about whether this model can be uh, can be exported from the Netherlands to, to countries like Denmark. Well, and then you're back to the contained tasks that are replicated, for the most part, not 100%, many, many, many times, and with a defined small group of people who have the time to really build the trust the awareness, the understanding, the team camaraderie that's going to make this work. Yeah. So I think what I'm suspecting is that I could look in any organization and find pockets of work and activity where a bossless structure would work very well. But what I'm hearing you say, Nikolai, what I'm convinced of is across the entire organization, a large organization, it'll be hard to have that be working everywhere. And that's exactly right. I, I think your observation that we can find pockets or corners or perhaps something bigger than just that in many, many organizations where bossless works fine is absolutely right. So think of R&D departments in many in, in, in the huge industrial company. Presumably those departments can be organized in something you know resembling the bossless way of organizing. 
you know, or, or almost like a university, right? Right. Each, each researcher is taken up with his or her little project, and there may not be a lot, a huge need for coordinating efforts. Those people can do their research uh, on, the, on, on their own. Yes. Same time, even there, I'm not convinced it works so much because otherwise we'd have people pursuing a whole bunch of different topics that none of which become commercially viable at the end of the day and not enough mass to actually really achieve something. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I see so many of my clients for people in the organization going more and more and more to project type work. Yeah. So a new product development or new product launch is going to be project based work, for example. Some of the innovation might be project-based work. There's a whole, it's like so many levels where the manager at the end of the day does not actually know what people who technically report to him or her are doing. So they can't do an effective job of rewards to performance or allocating resources or managing time. They just can't. And in those structures, it feels like we've got the hierarchy and we've got the bossless coexisting simultaneously and creating chaos. You want to react to that commentary? Uh, you think it actually creates chaos? It's very interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, hmm. So the, the, what I hear you saying is that we 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 have managers who don't understand their roles well enough when they are in a more ad hocratic organization that mixes traditional hierarchy with project organization. Um, and and that's, that's, that's probably true. And that's, you know, goes back to what we just talked about, the how delegation uh, and understanding um, how much you should empower your teams and your employees is an all important and classic management challenge. I mean, I guess it's always been like this, you know. Uh, what, what you observe here is probably nothing new. Uh, okay. But it's 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 hard to, I, I, you know, at one, at one point, in one way, I think it reflects that the management role basically is changing. And it is changing as a result of a lot of influences. So you mentioned the necessity of specifying goals as, mm -hmm. as right. a, an obvious key task that a manager carries out. Of course they do. Uh, and aren't, isn't the managerial role towards much changing towards much more of goal setting rather than directing specific actions. I think that that's that's the overall tendency. This is where we've been going for decades literally, right? And of course what you need when you when you when you have a project or team based organization. Yeah. Um, but it's it's apparently it's hard to unlearn the 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 management role of you know the old days of of the corporation in the 1950s and 1960s which is fundamentally about picking and identifying specific actions and directing your employees to engage in those specific actions, right? Right. Um, that, that's what I see. Yeah, uh, I see uh, sorry? Yeah. I said, I see that too. I tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pause in this one because I yeah. want to take a 
And when we come back from break, I want to come back and say, I agree with you that managers are specifying goals yeah. and that the job is less directing and more targeting goals with one exception. And you're going to have to wait till after the break to know where I think that exception is and why it keeps getting us in trouble with this directing spot. Nikolai Foss is my guest today. The book we're talking about is co-authored with Peter Klein, Why Managers Matter, The Perils of the Bossless Organization. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Nikolai Foss. He's professor of strategy and organization at the Copenhagen Business School. And we're talking about the book he co-authored with Peter Klein, Why Managers Matter, The Perils of the Bossless Organization. Quick recap. Hierarchical organizations are ones in which managers see their job as allocating resources, stepping in to intervene, directing, setting goals, targets, providing performance and reviews and reward systems That's their job. Bossless organizations are where it is much more done by the team. And mind you, hierarchical is never 100% and bossless is never 100%. Either we'll find pockets of either of those in any given organization. I think the second critical point is recognizing that the decisions that are made, the ways those decisions are made, the kind of topics that need to be dealt with, and the process for dealing with those topics is fundamentally different, Nikolai and I are going to argue, at the top of the organization where we're dealing with big, complex issues and tons of information to synthesize versus in other places where we're dealing with more task-focused work with clearer-ish defined outcomes and processes that make it a different set of decisions, different set of information. 
I'm trying to cut across a lot of industries and a lot of layers with shorthand and I'm doing a very, very bad job. All right. Just before the break, I teased. So everyone and his brother who thinks about being a manager or being a leader has been told or has read that directing, directing your employees is demotivating, that we don't want to do directing, okay, except in two cases. Case number one is, of course, if we're in a crisis, most of us want somebody to say in the crisis, let's go here, do that, do this. That is helpful to move efficiently in a crisis. So let's hope in organizations we don't have very many crises and we don't live through them for very long periods of time. So in that case, directing does work. But there's one other place where directing actually becomes useful, and that is when I am trying to train a new-ish employee to learn a very complicated field, and they're going to learn by the, quote, apprentice model. So they're going to come to see all the complexities and nuances by sitting with me as a senior leader in that space with lots of experience. And what I think that defines Nikolai is an expert leader who knows everything there is to know about that particular work that's being done. And the younger employee is learning. And in that case, directing is not necessarily a bad thing because it helps promote development. Now, dictatorial never works. Nobody likes that particularly well, but some directing is actually quite useful. And I think we get in a habit in those early years when we are the expert leader of directing because it's efficient and forget that as we move out of that expert role, it's not so critical. All right. You want to argue and debate with me about that? Right. So, um, you move from being, say, a leader of a team of specialists yeah. to becoming someone who knows about the team and is, is managing the team, right? Yeah. And you have to change okay. your management approach. Yeah. And I think I, this, this, this is very much like the conversation we just had about how your management style needs to change as you, as you change your position in your hierarchy, hierarchy right? And it's a very interesting observation. I haven't thought about it, um, uh, but the, the the more general observation is that uh, you know um, the, the how you manage specialists is another huge challenge, right? Yes. Because if the the reason why you can why direction is efficient, as you say, within the team, say, is exactly because there already is some kind of knowledge overlap if you're specialists. Uh, that's why that's why it works. I mean, that's why why that's why it's legitimate for you to di- direct, right? Um, and the problem then arises when there isn't such an overlap anymore. Um, but and and you need as as as. As someone managing specialists, you really need to be attentive to that. So in a sense, it cuts both ways your observation that you may take these direction-oriented management styles with you. It's, it's very interesting in itself, but there's, it's part of a much broader set of issues that relate to managing specialists and organizations, right? Um, hmm. 
Yeah, I don't want to argue with you because I think you are you're completely right here. But I, except there's actually one point. I think you said something like uh, there aren't so many crises calling for top manager direction. Are you actually sure? I mean, no. the, 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 okay, I like that. The, the, the very recent example of the COVID, you know, who decided on how we moved from, uh, how we moved activities online and worked from home and um, who, deci- who, did, who decided on, you know, the new teams, the new tasks that we should carry out, the new reward systems, the new ways of monitoring people who are not working on site, but are working from home and so on. You know, all of that, of course, was managed by, well, managers uh, in, a, in a directing way. And the, the, you know, something like the COVID is, this is a rare event, hopefully. But there is a case to be made that the the uh, business environment is increasingly turmoil and dynamic, and there are more truly unforeseen events happening uh, in the political realm and uh, you know in the in the, in the economic realm and everywhere basically, and that does call for for the kind of direction that you need to be a top manager to be able to 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 carry out. You know, because it's understanding, you know, be, be able to take the broad view. Uh, what are all the activities that we are currently carrying out? How do they connect? How, how is this major, unforeseen environmental shock, whatever it is, how is it affecting not a single team or function or even a division, but the entire company? And of course, that's where top manager involvement and this decisive decision making and speedy decision making is required. And if this is if this is what is happening in the world, then we'll, we're going to see more management of this of this kind, not not less. And that makes the case for the bossless uh, organization even weaker. I think. Yeah. yeah, I think you convinced me today, Nikolai, that we may places where bossless is going to be effective but that the whole organization can't be bossless. So, and I, I know you've said this already, but I'm going to ask you again, how would we identify that this pocket of the organization could be bossless versus some other part? What, what would those criteria look like? Right. So uh, again, this is super tricky. Uh, and um, something that I have realized isn't popular with many managers in business okay. schools Things like, you know, designing the organization. So what should we do? Which activities should we carry out? What's our division of labor? How should we departmentalize and so on? These are typically the really unpopular classes. <laughs> uh, because Perhaps because it's difficult to tell good stories about, about organizing. Maybe. I mean, we, we, we all realize we need accounting skills. We need some finance skills, right? It's strategy is also an appealing subject to, to teach and to learn about because there are all these war stories and so on, right? But, you know, um, designing an organization, that sounds like boring engineering or something, right? Yeah. But there are, there are lots of material written, written ab- 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 about this and how, you know, the best way of organizing is really highly, highly contingent on technology and our task structure on our customers, on the amount of uncertainty in our environment and, 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 and so much else. Um, and, and there are these resources. 
Uh, and of course, there are also consultants that, that specialize in providing the relevant services. Barton Consulting Group, for example, has a huge and successful unit dedicated to uh, helping companies with organization design. But still, it's super specific to the individual function or uh, units or organization. And one thing I've been thinking about is why don't we actually leave it to a large extent to the employees? And it, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being influenced by the boss's narrative myself. What I'm thinking specifically is, why not adopt what we already do in the business schools? Write up a case, a case involving our organization, three, four pages mm-hmm. that identifies, you know, the, the major problems and the major contingencies, circumstances that we need to take into account and so on. Write it up. Let employees discuss it and create a process around that, that description and the, you know, the discussions that, that come, come out of the, the whole thing. And, and my guess is that top managers can learn a lot from this because this brings us back to decentralization. One of the reasons why decentralization is good is because it let people who are in the know, and they might be people who they may be, may be middle managers, people in the shop floor, whatever, let them you know, make, make the decisions. Uh, and convey their insight and utilize their knowledge. And th- this is one way of perhaps perhaps doing it. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. So there's a heavy, it depends, if I keep hearing your answer correctly. And I will also say that there is a lovely chapter in the back end of the book that gives you a little more detail on the criteria you would be needing to use to determine which way you're, you should go within your organization. Um, this all raises the fundamental question, which I now want to turn to, which is how as a manager, wherever I'm sitting in the levels within my organization, whatever task is in front of me, how do I come to understand what my fundamental job is in managing? Given that it'll be different in different places. So what's my job? How do I know what my job is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, as you say, super contingent, but there are some things that are just totally general across time and place. And, uh, you know, uh, I I think that creating self-awareness among your employees is an absolutely crucial, perhaps underrated management skill. Uh, What what do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, making your employees or those you direct or whatever manage understand what, what they are truly good at, um, particularly in the in the context of what the team or the projects we talked about, what, what, what they are doing, and in terms of, of course, of the objectives of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another underrated thing that we perhaps don't talk enough about in the business, in, in business school education is, is building trust. Uh, we, we talked about specialists earlier. Right? And, and many have said that one of the key ways in which business and industry is, is, is changing and has been changing over the last decades is that specialists have become so much more important. And with, with specialists, building trust is, is, is so super important because as a manager of specialists, it's just difficult for you to understand sometimes, literally understand what, what they're doing and why they're doing it. So, so trust comes into the picture as an all-important factor. And also, you know, self-awareness uh, is 
very important with, with these people because some specialists may have a tendency to, you know, become too narrow in their focus. And therefore, it's important to make them understand how they, they fit into the bigger picture. Uh, understanding what's, what truly motivates your employees seems to me to be a third all-important thing for a manager to do. Uh, and I, I remember, I remember, I mentioned the, uh, the hearing aid producer, the Danish hearing aid producer, Otakan, earlier. And um, I visited the company many times doing interviews. And the last, in my last interview rounds, we, we interviewed a lot of the engineers about what truly motivated them. Uh, and they pretty uniformly said that a prime motivator for them was to watch, you know, movie snippets or videos of little children getting hearing implants. Mm-hmm. Little small children who had been deaf their entire life suddenly being able to actually hear, you know, and watching the big smile on their face and so on. And, you know, so these, these, these guys seem to be very pro-socially motivated or whatever you might want to, to call it, right? And understanding what, what makes people motivated this is just all important i think right and again you know what makes specialists motivated right. increasingly important it's important all right i think if i do a summary out of all of this discussion i'm going to come away with a couple of key points for me taking away one is that what the manager needs to be doing what the value add is for a manager the tasks of a manager are going to vary widely depending upon where you sit within the organization, R&D versus frontline, for example, um, the function that you're in, the depth of expertise that's in that function, your own expertise, and your levels in the hierarchy. So the decisions that you are privy to and the ways in which those decisions are going to be made, that that is, you're going to have dramatically different ways of adding value. And we have to hold on to that as an important concept. And that, therefore, the tasks of deciding who's doing what job and how I'm delegating and how much and where and who I'm empowering and how I'm empowering and how I'm rewarding and so on are going to vary based on the criteria of what it is I need to do as a manager. And I think that's the first level. The final piece I'm going to add to this is that there are places where uh, bossless is going to work very well and places where it won't work very well. It takes careful thought to decide. And finally, I love your last three criteria that the job of a manager always is creating awareness in your employees, building trust with and among your employees and understanding what motivates your employees. And Nikolai, I don't think we'd have a better summary of what's the essential skills for today. So it's been a pleasure having you as a guest. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Again, my guest is Nikolai Foss. The book we're talking about is Why Managers Matter, The Perils of the Bossless Organization. And I will say join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week 